this evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdooney, and I will be uh, honored to have and are honored to have with us Brian Abshire. Brian is one of our Calcedon Report writers. He is a Calcedon trustee, and he is a pastor in the Milwaukee area in Wisconsin. Brian's background is a very interesting one, and his pilgrimage uh, to a theonomic Christian Reconstructionist perspective is a very important one. Brian, we're very happy to have you with us. Thank you, Rush. Uh, Brian was with us last April, but we didn't have the time then because there were about 35 others here at the same time uh, to interview him then. Brian, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and your experiences, and we will interrupt whenever we want to, to get a little more of what you're telling us and uh, some more details. Thanks, Rush. I, I appreciate that. You and I were talking earlier today about one of the challenges facing modern Reconstructionism is the quality of our converts. A yes. basic fundamental thing that you have taught from the very beginning, from the earliest writings I've gone through, is that the, the fundamental sphere of government is self-government. Without men who are self-governed under God's law, Reconstruction cannot take place in other area of life. And in fact, I would say that, that the work of Christian Reconstruction began in my life. I grew up in a home which was not, <clears throat> it was a culturally Christian home in the sense that my parents had had some knowledge of the gospel. And uh, when I was six years old, a, a small Baptist church in our town, which had been closed for some years, opened up and uh, my parents enrolled me in Sunday school. In fact, I found out years later, though my parents didn't understand it, that that Baptist church, which was about 60 or 70 years old at the time, had actually been, the land had been given by one maternal great-grandfather, and the original pastor was an English pastor, English Baptist from uh, uh, immigrant, uh, was uh, hired, was, was the other grandfather. And so, by God's grace, there was a covenant line back there, but by the time of my parents' generation, they had lost all sense of, of Christianity. Christianity was something that was external. You went to church, uh, you did what you were told, and I would almost say, without being disrespectful to them, it was almost like uh, a superstition. You didn't walk under a ladder, you didn't let a black cat cross your, your path, and you went to church to keep bad things from happening to you. And one of the things that struck me is that though even at a very young age I was often inspired by what I heard preached, what I did not see was how that preached word worked itself out in people's lives. And I can remember, it was a very small church, just a few families doing it, uh, and the pastor uh, on Sunday morning would preach these wonderful messages that would thrill my soul. But then afterwards, the, the little old ladies of the church would be discussing his shortcomings in quite some vivid detail. For example, he used to beat his wife, for example. Supposedly, I'm, I'm not sure if that's true, but that was a, at least one of the things they said. And so even though they would be very nice to him externally, they had no respect for him. By the time that I was 12 years old, I became convinced that Christianity was nice, it was interesting, but it couldn't possibly be true. For I had never met anyone who actually made it work in their lives. And so as most 
uh, products of the secular school system. I read my Darwin, I was about 12 years old when I read Origin of Species. Uh, I adopted a pseudo-scientific outlook on life. Uh, and since this was the late 1960s, um, I got involved in all the same kinds of things that my compatriots were doing. Uh, if there is no hope, if there is no future, if there is no Christ, there is no right or wrong, each man makes his own morality, and I figured, therefore, let me make as much morality as is convenient, but let me live my life to have as much enjoyment as I can. Whereabouts was this? What part of the country? I grew up in rural Maine on the seacoast, uh, about halfway up the coast between Bangor and Portland, mm -hmm. a small fishing village called Clark Island. It was uh, rural. There was a quarry there, and most, but most of the men either worked in the quarry or in the uh, fishing for lobsters and things like that. Small town, very much small town, as only small town New England can be. Um, and uh, we used to say that there were 84 people in my village, uh, and that included three bears who lived in the woods. <laughs> so, uh, very nice. But uh, by the time that I had got to be a teenager, uh, we had moved from that particular point to, a, to what was then a big city in rural Maine. It had almost 2,000 people in it, uh, so it was urban environment for us. Uh, it allowed more opportunities to sin. And I became uh, very consistent with my own rebellion, rejection of God's law. And every so often, I would meet people who uh, affirmed Christianity. But when I looked at their lives, they seemed as if they all were cut out of the same mold. They had a superficial morality, but underneath was the very same lack of any life-changing application that I knew. And so therefore, Christianity was at best a crutch for the weak, um, uh, or a harmless delusion that people had, but at worst, it simply covered up people's psychological deficiencies. As the years went on, uh, I found uh, that my own life, going through a teenager, 1960s was a rough time for most of us, I think, who went through those times, trying to find meaning and purpose. Uh, and so I carried a sign in 69 and grew my hair long, and uh, I won't say I grew a beard, but I tried to grow a beard, because if there is no truth, there is no basis in life, my teachers had told me there's no right or wrong, each man has to make his own morality, then I attempted to find my own. And I tried to find it in an identification with uh, my peers. My family life was broken down. My family had stopped going to even any kind of a church at that point. And uh, with that came uh, some very bad decisions my parents made, which ended in a divorce. And that meant uh, I had no family structure. I had no father to look to for guidance. Uh, my siblings had all grown up and moved on and made their decisions in life and uh, were making mistakes. I tried to identify with my peers. And one of the things that I found is that there was a great hope amongst young people about 68, 69, and 70. And you have to appreciate living in Maine, we we're five years behind the rest of the country. So what everyone else was doing in 1965, we finally got around to doing in 1969 and 1970. And especially as the, the hippies wore out on the west coast, a lot of them migrated and bought chicken farms in Maine and started communes. And I had a lot of these people were really good friends and I met with them and we smoked dope and we, we thought if we could just get everyone together, if we could get Nixon, if we could get, you know, Ho Chi Minh, if we could get, uh, you know, Mao Zedong together, just get them to smoke some dope and, and that would make all the world better because that was the answer to all problems. It sounded good. The difficulty was, Rush, is that when you stripped away that veneer, they were just as rotten as everyone else. And I found this out the first time I tried to buy some dope from a friend of mine, and he sold me a bag of oregano and dried leaves. 
or that they all talk about let's have love and respect. Really, it was just a way of getting a girl into a compromising situation so you could sin with her. And so, though there was uh, uh, an outward morality there, and there was an outward desire inside, it was corruption. I got very depressed, and when I'd finished school, I had no money for college, and I worked at some very terrible jobs. I, I think one of the best, the best jobs I had was working in a scrapyard for a minimum wage, throwing iron on the back of a truck in order to get enough money to live. And uh, there seemed to be no future, and there seemed to be no hope. And not to be too melodramatic, but I, I thought that the purpose of life was to maximize pleasure, but to minimize pain. But I didn't seem to be too good. See, I wasn't tall enough and smart enough and good-looking enough and athletic enough to maximize pleasure. And I didn't seem to be very capable of escaping pain, at least the pain that was inside of me. And so in 1972, I did something that made me the absolute reprobate as far as my peers were concerned. People would spit at me when they found out what I did. I joined the military. You see, because the military offered you veterans benefits, which meant a college education. But in order to do that, you had to reject everything that you had been living for for the previous three or four years. Now, it was a very safe decision. I joined the Air Force, not the Army. Uh, it was at the end of the Vietnam War, not the middle of it. And so there was certainly a coward's aspect to it. But it really required a, tr a turning around. And in some aspect, I think that what I wanted the military to do, because I was a romantic, had read lots of books, watched lots of old movies. And I remember uh, my favorite kind of movie was the, the young punk kid who joins the Marine Corps. and then they give them the discipline and the self-confidence and they transform the man and he becomes a hero, dies gloriously for God and country and all that sort of thing. But there's a transformation that the external forces could do. And I joined the Air Force and I was waiting for this great transformation to come. I don't know how many of you guys have that military experience. Douglas. <laughs> Douglas? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> why. I I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> Were you in the Air Force or? I was in the Army. In the Army, okay. Well, you know what we used to call Air Force Boot Camp? The only difference between Air Force Boot Camp and a Boy Scout camp is the Boy Scouts got adult supervision. Mm -hmm. Because they, this was the 70s, the early 70s, nobody wanted to be military. Uh, all they wanted to do was to run you through a program as quickly as possible. And what I found is that it doesn't do any good to change your circumstance if the problems are inside you. And I got to my... Uh, couple of bases and uh, uh, moved around to various places and did all the training and things. And I was stationed in San Antonio at a very, very important job. In fact, the job was so important that any high school boy who's worked in a grocery store packing groceries is probably qualified to do the job I was given. Um, and I was working at this very depressing job. My life seemed meaningless and purposeless. And the first day of, the, of this new job at the new base where I was stationed at, a guy came up and shook my hand and said, hi, would you like to go to lunch? Now he smiled at me and he shook my hand firmly. And I was convinced, this guy must be a homosexual. I mean, why else would he want to be friendly with you? I mean, I don't know this guy, why does he want to invite me to lunch? So we went to the chow hall together and we got our food and we sat down on a table. And there was a good old boy there, his name was Joe, and he was from Kentucky. And we sat down and Joe said, I remember these words, he says, my life has changed so much since Jesus came into it as only someone from the hills of Kentucky can do. Well, I broke out laughing. I thought this was hilarious because I thought he was putting a put, doing a put-down of all these ignorant, fundamentalist, you know, Bible Belt type people. And these four guys around a table looked at me and said, 
don't you believe in Jesus Christ? And I kind of laughed and it took me back and I made some sort of a blasphemous comment like, well, you know, Jesus was just the illegitimate son of a spaceman on shore leave, you know, some horrible thing. And these guys, they didn't react as I thought they would. They didn't get up and walk away. They didn't uh, spit in my face. They didn't call me all sorts of names, but they started sharing Christ with me. And the way they did it was to make a personal investment in my life. They spent time with me. They took me to a move. Took me to movies. We yeah, had went out for pizza together. They showed compassion for me, and they tried to talk with me about Christ. Well, I was arrogant, and I thought I knew, knew something, and so I brought up all the classic objections to Christianity that people bring up. If you know someone, and to be perfectly honest, I won every argument. These, I mean, these were nice guys, but they didn't know the answers. In fact, they used to say one thing that drove me so crazy that I threatened that if I ever heard of the again as a Christian, I would, I would probably commit grievous bodily harm. You've got to accept that by faith. That was the wrong answer. But however, what they were doing right is they demonstrated that Jesus Christ made a difference in your life. Now, I don't know how long you want to go on about this, but I think this is, is probably significant because the one thing that, that really God used to bring about conversion the thing that made the penny drop for me was, in fact, uh, a homosexual. Now, this is going to sound very strange, but it shows how God works through various means. What had happened is that we all worked in a very high security area. You had to have top secret security clearances, and most of us were working at other jobs while we waited for our security clearances to come through. Everyone except me, because my job was so stupid, I didn't have to wait for security clearance. But what they did is that while we were waiting, you know, there was a, they go back and they send investigators in your background, they interview your parents and your teachers and all the guys around you. And then uh, they'd make sure you're not a member of the Communist Party or a drug dealer or anything like that. And then once you've passed that interview, they will sit you down. I mean, once they pass that background investigation, they will sit you down and they'll give you an interview. And it's a formality. And they'll ask you a series of questions. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Have you ever threatened to assassinate the President of the United States? Have you ever done drugs? Have you ever done this? And of course, it was a farce, because if they hadn't found anything by that point, you were in. You could get your clearance. You could start your job. This friend, uh, who was one of these guys, um, was sitting there. And one day, he said, guys, I want you to pray for me, because I've got my interview tomorrow. And what had happened is that this man had had a homosexual experience. And they were going to ask him, have you ever had a homosexual experience? This was before his conversion? Or this something? was, uh, yeah, before his conversion. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I, and, and I said, well, what's wrong? And he just tell a lie. He just lied. All of us lied. I mean, that was standard. And he said, no, I can't lie. I said, but if you lie, you'll lose your job. And this man really wanted to make the military a career. He was going to get his education and become an officer. He was very committed. He was always correcting me on my uniform infractions and things like that. And I knew he really wanted to do this. And I said, Mike, you just got to lie. He said, no, I cannot lie because Christ is my Lord. And that was the first time in my entire life I had ever met a Christian who was willing to put everything that he held important on the line for his faith. Everyone I'd ever met would have been willing to sell Christ out whenever it got to be convenient. Well, the next day, he went for his interview. They asked him the question, he answered yes, and they threw him out of the Air Force. Just like that. He paid the ultimate price. No bailout, no last minute reprieve, no miraculous thing, but he was willing to pay the price to follow Christ. I had never seen anyone willing to make that kind of decision before. 
willing to, to sacrifice. There's no glory in it. I mean, it's not like, I mean, the guy was admitting to something which was reprehensible and disgusting and revolting. It's something that most of us would want to cover up. We wouldn't want anyone to know about that kind of thing. But he was willing to take a stand because his Lord demanded truth. Um, I recognized something when that happened, that I didn't have that kind of life. My life was meaningless and it was purposeless. And even though these guys could not answer the questions that I was raising, I knew that I needed what they had to give them that kind of moral courage. And so very undramatically, I knelt by my bunk and I bowed my head and folded my hands and I said, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Please change my heart. Please bring me into your kingdom. And I'd like to say that there was a dramatic, wonderful, dynamic experience that, you know, lights went off and bells went off and, and uh, you know, angels came and sang and there was a swell of crescendo of music in the background, but there was nothing. It was just, okay, that's it. The difference was is that from that point on, because I didn't know any better, these guys who had, who had been ministering to me and talking with me and sharing with me said, okay, now if you're a Christian, this is what a Christian's got to do. You can't use the same language you used to use. Okay, that's fine. You've got to spend time every day in the Word of God. You've got to uh, share the gospel with other people. You've got to memorize the Word of God and meditate on it. And because I didn't know any better, I thought, well, okay, that's what I'll do. And so every morning, by God's grace, I would open my Bible up and I would read it and I wouldn't understand it, but I would memorize the verses faithfully. But God was working there to take these things. Here was a mind that had been ripped apart by drugs, that had been you know, bombarded by alien philosophies, uh, you know, uh, full of its own arrogance and, and uh, stupidity. And slowly but surely, over time, as the Word of God came in to fill my heart and fill my mind, I found my attitudes changing, the anger uh, tracing away, the bitterness going away. Uh, rather than looking at women as convenient vehicles of lust, to try to see them as human beings that needed to be respected, um, rather than seeing other people as a threat to my self-esteem or security, to see that I had a responsibility to minister to them. And what Christ did in my life was the same thing he was doing with these other men's lives and the other men that I knew about. He was taking these, child, these children of the 60s who were living broken and frustrated and arrogant who had no self-government, and he was teaching them step by step how to live self-governed under God's law. The problem was is that we didn't have much of the law. All we had were little fragments and little bits. Our theology got in the way. And so it was very frustrating because you could only go so far but you knew there ought to be something different. Um, it came to me, and I don't, you can let me go on all evening, I know, like most preachers, I can talk until the cows come home, but it came to a head for me when I went to a Christian college. And I really had a problem because there seemed to be in the world two types of Christians. There were people who had been converted as adults, such as I was and such as my wife was later on to be, and there was a rapid transformation of our lives and people who had grown up in churches. And the people who grew up in churches were usually very nice and very moral and they never used bad words like I sometimes still did and, and they never had socially unacceptable behaviors, but they had no desire for God's word, they had no desire for sharing the gospel. In fact, I thought church was actually quite a good idea because it allowed me to go in and identify someone that I could witness to so that God could transform their life the same way he transformed mine. Because they obviously weren't transformed themselves, they were just had this religious veneer over them. And it came to a crisis, I think, when I got out of the Air Force and I used my veterans benefits and I went to a Christian college and I found that there was uh, total bankruptcy. This is an evangelical Christian college. Total bankruptcy in every single department except one. 
The one department that was any good was the hard sciences, the chemists and the, physics, the physicists. Those guys down there took God's word for what it was, and they loved it. But for heaven's sake, keep out of the social sciences, the psychology, the sociology. You know, don't take Bible courses because these men want to glean from Bart and Boltman and uh, 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 Tillich and others, you know, all what we can. We didn't read them to refute them. We read them in order to find what insights they had. It's like, you know, looking for gold uh, in a manure pile. Sure, occasionally you might find something that somebody dropped, but if you want gold, you look in a different kind of territory altogether. And what I realized is that there was something dramatically missing in evangelical Christianity. It had been missing when I was a child. It had been missing in most of the church people I had run into. Christ wasn't transforming most Christians' lives. They weren't living a different life. And I didn't understand all that it was, and I didn't understand what, I was, what, uh, what was the missing element, but I knew it had to be somewhere. It came, uh, for me, the crux came in 1982, when I was beginning my doctrinal studies. And what I had done is uh, I was going to England to do my doctoral work, and I knew that I was going to be in something to do with American history and the American system. And I wanted to buy a bunch of books which I didn't think I'd be able to get in England. And I went through, it was those days, with the old Puritan Reform catalog. Today it's, uh, it's called Great Christian Books. And I went through and I ordered all the books I could find in that catalog, in about three or four months worth of catalogs, that dealt with Christians, Christian in society, all that sort of thing. And the one name that kept coming up both in great Christian books and in the footnotes of several books that I did have was the name R.J. Rushdoony. Well, at that point, I thought Rushdoony was someone like Calvin or someone like Augustine that was a great dead Presbyterian of the past. So, you know, he's a great dead madman. Okay, I'll get these books. And I had, a, I had literally boxes of them. And I took them to England, and I did the first part of my research, uh, and I went to the library at the University of Lancaster, and I studied for all the secular and the academic things and read the original documents. And I said, okay, now I've, I've done their bit. Now let me look at it from a Christian perspective to see if I can find some answers. Why doesn't Christianity work in America today? You see, I had already realized it had worked once before. Christianity had transformed our nation. It had begun our nation. It had was the foundation of our nation. But something happened because it wasn't working any longer. So I began reading these books, and I read The Nature of the American System. And I read This Independent Republic. And I read The Messianic Character of American Education. And these books were gems. They were life-transforming. The answers that I had been looking for and searching for in my own stupid, incompetent way were here again and again and again. And finally, I, I found references to this uh, set called the Institutes of Biblical Law. And I thought, well, this, is the, this isn't really what I'm doing. I'm doing without Puritanism and American culture. This really isn't what it's about, because it's not a historical book. But I'll get this book anyway. And I managed to get this book, and I read it through in about two days' time. I couldn't put it down. Because on each page of these books, and especially the Institutes, there was the Christian life outlined for one. There was the historical and the cultural implications, and there was these wonderful stories and anecdotes and illustrations in it, but there was the Word of God laid out for me. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be. The reason why Christians live such miserable, depressed, uh, defeatist life is because they didn't have the law of God. And Rush Tooney pointed out repeatedly that the law of God is the content of the Christian life, and that transformed my life. That transformed my, my thoughts. It worked its way into every aspect of it. Now, it took a long time to become a post-millennialist, and it took a long time to become a Vantillian, 
and all the other things that go along with Christian Reconstruction, those were very, very hard battles. But the introduction to biblical law, that this is what changes life. This is what had changed my life when I was a baby Christian. I didn't realize it, but the, the little snippets of the law that I'd been given had what had transformed my life. And this is what had transformed my friends' lives. And now I had not just a snippet, not just an appetizer, not just the crumbs that had fallen on the floor, but now I had the full course banquet itself. Well, uh, you were in England also earlier, were you not, with the Air Force? I was stationed uh, for four years in England, uh, about 18 miles northeast of Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And you picked up something out of your English uh, years, including a wife. Yes. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? If, or whatever you'd like. Sure. Um, the first, uh, I went to England, was stationed there, transferred there in 1974, complaining. The only thing at that point I wanted was to get out of the Air Force. And there was a program that if you had fulfilled a certain amount of time uh, on active duty, you could turn the rest of your time in and, and do it as reserve duty. And you could go back home. And I had just become a Christian at that particular point, and I wasn't doing very well for a couple of reasons. And I was waiting for the day to come when I could turn my, my, my active duty time in and, and get out of the Air Force and get away from people and sergeants and things like that. About a week before I was qualified to go, I got an assignment. Now, I happened to be working at the right place, but when you're on an assignment, it freezes you. You can't go anywhere, you can't do anything, because you now have an assignment to go to a new place. Everybody in my squadron had managed to go over to the office and talk to somebody and buy somebody a fifth of whiskey or something, and they could get their assignment changed. Well, I bought two fists of whiskey and put a $5 bill around it as well and did everything I knew to get my assignment changed. Nope, couldn't happen, wouldn't happen. I went to England kicking and screaming because I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get out of the Air Force. My introduction to England was on a cold November day. It was raining, it was cold, it was miserable. Uh, the guy that I worked for, was going to work for was a master sergeant. He was about four foot tall. Um, he had weird teeth and I thought he looked like one of the guys in Deliverance, actually. Um, <clears throat> I thought, oh, what, am I, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, the English base looked like something out of World War II, except it, except it had been bombed and never, never repaired. It was a horrible experience, but the one thing that was there is that the second day that I was there, somebody came by my room and knocked on my door. And it just so happened that the guy who had been instrumental in leading me to Christ, who had now been kicked out of the Air Force, one of his best friends had been sent to England, and when he found out that I was going to England, he kept tabs to me and said, you know, Ken, go track this guy down and make sure that he stays in the faith. And I didn't realize that Ken thought, well, you're in the same country, maybe you can find each other. He wasn't only in the same country, he was on the same base, he was two barracks away from me. And so he brought me to a Bible study on a Friday evening fellowship, and uh, where there was a bunch of Christians meeting, and we would listen to tapes, and we'd talk, and maybe do a little singing, a typical kind of campus crusade navigator activity. And what they decided to do is they were going to take a bunch of us GIs to uh, a campus crusade, an English campus crusade conference. And they said, whoever wants to go, you can go. And I thought, well, this is a good idea, because if you go to a campus crusade conference, that must mean there must be campus crusade girls at the conference. You see, I'm not dumb. I mean, in, you know, in, you know, I'm in England, young girls, that's great. And I went there with the only idea, the only reason I went there was because I was a Christian, God was working in my life, but basically I wanted to have some fun. Now, let me set the scene for you. 
bunch of gaudily dressed, loud, obnoxious American GIs pull up to this conference center. The conference center is really an old English manor house. It has the, the, it's Georgian in its architecture with the high windows. It's set on a large farm. You can just see, uh, you know, uh, Heathcliff and uh, uh, what's her name, you know, running through mm -hmm. the heath and having a wonderful time. I walk into this, the, the foyer, and there's a huge curving staircase going up. And it's full of students, you know, men and women, and uh, are milling around. And I look up the staircase, and down the staircase comes, and I'm serious when I say this, the most beautiful girl I think I'd ever known, I'd ever seen. She had beautiful black hair. She was dressed in a long uh, uh, midi-length skirt with boots underneath it. She looked like an English lady who had just returned from riding to the hounds. And I thought to myself, you know, that's the kind of girl that I've always wanted to, you know, to know and to have a relationship with, but I can never get to first base. I can't even get her name out. This girl struck me as being marvelous. Throughout that entire week in the conference, I, whenever I saw this girl, I would sort of get close to her, but I wouldn't dare say anything. I would uh, stand behind her in a line or a queue, as they say in England. Uh, I would try to, to sit next to her, and I just couldn't. Finally, I found out that this young lady was in the same prayer group as one of my buddies. And I said, hey, Rich, you've got to work me an introduction, you know. Next time that uh, you know, we're in one of these uh, times between the sessions, you know, uh, you just kind of introduce me, you know, real gently. You know, we'll do it real sophisticatedly. And so, uh, sure enough, in the next hour, there was a break between the things as people milling around. And uh, I said, hey, Rich, there's that girl. Introduce me now. So my friend Rich, who is a lovely guy, screams out at the top of his voice across this crowded room, Elaine, Elaine, I've got a friend here who's been dying to meet you all week. <laughs> I, I just fell to pieces. I, uh, I didn't know what to say. I walked over and I kind of stumbled something out and I asked her a question. The problem was is that this girl was very sweet and very demure and everything she said was a mumble. And I couldn't hear I couldn't hear her name. I couldn't hear where she went to university. I didn't know what she was studying. So I'm asking all the basic questions that one asked, but I couldn't hear any answers. And I was too embarrassed to say, sorry, pardon me, speak up, I can't hear you. So I mumbled something out, I, and I, I walked outdoors, and I just basically, you know, pulled my hair out in frustration and, and guaranteed that I was going to meet my friend in a dark alley and, and give him a good thumping. <laughs> I uh, never saw her during the rest of the week. But meantime, during this conference, what was coming through was very, very important for me spiritually, because during the conference, they were focusing on why are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, why aren't you living like a Christian? Why aren't you dedicated to being the man or woman that God wants you to be? And so though I had come to try to you know, get some phone numbers and uh, some dates, what I ended up getting was an emphasis on knowing and understanding God. And they had a book table that was full of Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, I had never read a Christian before who thought. I had never read a Christian who could, who could think. And all the things I'd read had been dispensational and pre-tribulation and rapture and that sort of nonsense. But Schaefer started opening up a lot of doors. I didn't realize at the time that most of Schaefer's best ideas had he had cribbed from Dr. Rush Dooney, but that's another story altogether. But I began reading these books, and uh, it just so happened that I managed to get this girl Elaine's address, and I wrote to her a couple of times, and she wrote back, and. I wrote her very meaningful, deep, penetrating letters as I explored my soul in the process of understanding this Christianity and how it worked out in my life. 
she would write me letters that said that, well, she had played badminton last night and exams had gone well and it was a nice day. And I could not make any headway with this girl whatsoever. And so a whole year went by, but in that particular year, I began to read Schaefer and began to understand why, part of the reason why Christians had problems. The only difficulty with Schaefer is that though he did a brilliant job of critiquing the problem, he never had any answers. And that was a problem with Schaefer's work all through his life. His greatest series is uh, what should, How Should We Then Live? And uh, the thing is, he never tells us how we should live. He didn't have the answers. He didn't have biblical law. But anyway, about a year later, to finish this particular story up, I went to another conference, and I remember thinking uh, on my way there, gee, I wonder if I, that girl I met last year, Elaine, will be here. And uh, we went to the orientation meeting that Friday night, and there was a speaker, and I looked around, and I didn't see her. I thought, oh, well, that's good. I've got important things to do, and I, I want to understand God's Word, and I want to live it out, and I want to be obedient. And just as this opening meeting was closing, there was a clatter and a bustle in the back of the room, and here comes the same girl that I had met a year before. I thought, well, that's interesting. She came to this particular conference after all. And I felt like such an idiot for the way that I had handled things a year before. I made a point of uh, saying to her, uh, if you have a few minutes, let's just go for a walk and, and talk. And what at first began to be maybe a two-minute discussion and just me saying, hey, I'm sorry for being such a jerk. Uh, I began asking her questions, and this time I heard what she was saying. And she said something that was very significant. She was getting ready to finish her degree and to start her career, and she wasn't going to be a sociologist as she had intended. She was going to go into full-time Christian service. And as we were walking along, I said, but Elaine, what do you really want out of life? What is it that's really important to you? And she said, to know and to obey Christ. That's all that's important. Everything else is secondary. That's the central thing. And in my brain, something clicked. Now, the girl was more beautiful this year than the year before, but it was not her beauty that convinced me that I wanted to marry her. It was the fact that she was sold out to Christ. She wanted to be God's woman. And I said to myself, I'm going to marry you. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know when, but I'm going to marry you. And I kept to myself wisely. And it took about two years and of, uh, of prayer and fasting and pleading. No, uh, uh, but eventually, uh, about two years later, uh, in Wales, on the side of a mountain overlooking the Irish Sea as the sun was going down, um, it was so romantic a moment, I let the question out before I knew it. And I said, will you marry me? Um, she looked at me very sweetly and gave me a very tender kiss on the lips, very sweet, and I remember thinking to myself, oops, I've had that kind of reaction before. It's so sweet, it's so kind, it's obviously, she's trying to let me down gently. And I remember thinking in my head as, as, as because it seemed like it was three hours long, the kiss was actually about, you know, 10 seconds at most. And I remember thinking, well, okay, what am I gonna do? I just proposed to a girl, she's turned me down. Well, I am God's man, I will do what God wants me to do. Lord, it's just you and me, wherever you say, I'll go. You know, let me jump out of an airplane and go preach to pygmies, that's okay. But instead, when she drew back from me, she said, yes, I will. And so two years after that, Elaine Robinson became Elaine Abshire and has been the best part. Apart from my conversion to faith in Christ by God's grace, the next best gift he gave me was my wife. And she is a constant joy. And you have six children now. Yes, six children. And... Uh, Brian, relate to us some of your the educational experiences that uh, you were talking about, um, both in the secular institutions and in some of the Christian institutions. You may not want to mention the specific names, but uh, <coughs> would you care to talk about that? Thanks. Um, 
I started taking classes in the evening when I was on active duty in the Air Force because I try to think, what is it that God wants me to do? Well, God had changed my life. He really had done a significant work of grace. He had taken something that was really pretty reprehensible and he had transformed it. I thought, what better thing could I do with my life than to help other people experience the same sort of life transformation? Well, what was the best way to do that? Well, being still deeply influenced by secularism and humanism, obviously I thought psychology was the way to go. See, and if you could be a psychologist and understood what makes people tick, then you could be a Christian psychologist and bring the insights of the Bible. You put these two things together and you could help transform people's lives. So I began taking a series of courses, uh, regular college level courses, like a five or six uh, in the evening, and they were a basic introduction to psychology. But the humanism and the, the, the sheer desperation that secular psychology has was so bad. Pardon me, I thought I cannot study this any longer from as a Christian. And this is reprehensible, it's horrible. And the thing that made my mind up was the next course I was supposed to take was a course on human sexuality. The entire course consisted of watching pornographic movies. Now they didn't call them pornographic movies, they were educational movies. But if you were dealing with human sexuality, you had to look at all the aspects, including sodomy, including disgusting and reprehensible acts, and including such things as one section on bestiality. That was a part of it. So I therefore said, I will not study psychology from a Christian perspective. I don't want to hear about Freud. I don't want to hear about Skinner. I don't want to hear about Maslow, Abrahams, May, those sort of guys. I want to go to a Christian school and study psychology from a Christian perspective. And when I got out of the Air Force, I went to a four-year Christian school, and I was a psychology major, and I took the, some few classes I had to take, and then I got my first psychology class. And the professor opened up the class, and he opened his Bible, and he read a Bible verse, and that's great. I've never had a college class with a Bible verse I've been read before. Then he gave a little prayer at the beginning of the sessions, and man, that's wonderful. I'd never heard a you know, prayer before. You know, we're going to help us, Lord, to understand your word and apply it in life. And then he sat down his Bible, and this is literally what happened. He sat down his Bible, he picked up his secular psychology textbook, and he began lecturing the same exact humanistic nonsense that I've been taught in a secular institution. Yeah, I have my Christianity, it's real, it's significant, it's meaningful, it's personal, uh, but it has nothing to do with the way that I do my discipline. In fact, later on I were to meet Christians who were studying psychology saying, oh, don't call me a Christian psychologist, I'm a Christian who's a psychologist. I uh, finished a psychology degree because I'd already had so much invested in it, I got disgusted with that, and I went and did a second major in biblical and theological studies because I didn't want to go through life known as a, with a psychology as the only major. And through a lot of pressure from other people, I went to seminary, and I still had in my mind what I want to do is I want to help people change. I want to help them experience in their lives what Christ has done in my life. And I took prolegomena, and I took Greek, and I took exegetical methods, and I took all the courses you have to take. I battered the humanism and the, the, the neo-orthodox theology that kept creeping up in classes. I got my first class in pastoral counseling, which is what my major was going to be. I was so excited. I was looking forward to it. Here was a man who was not only a certified PhD in psychology, but he had a PhD in theology. This, therefore, must be the best of both worlds. And it was the same thing. He opened his Bible. He read a nice verse about, uh, you know, from Scripture. He prayed a nice little prayer. He put his Bible down. He opened his psychology textbook. And he taught us about Freud. And he taught us about Skinner. And he taught us about uh, all the uh, Rogers and all the other psychotherapists. He didn't have a clue. And I became extremely dysfunctional. When I was at this particular seminary, 
I, uh, I became, I actually I got uh, a bad name for myself because I asked embarrassing questions. Because at a supposedly evangelical seminary, which held in its official doctrinal statements to the inerrancy and fallibility of the Word of God, we had a number of our professors who were writing for liberal and neo-orthodox um, scholarly journals. And in fact, one particular article was written by my New Testament professor who had written on the pseudepigraphic authorship of the Pauline epistles. And basically what he was saying is he was making a defense of the case that there were certain books in the New Testament that had been attributed to the Apostle Paul, but were really second or maybe even third century forgeries that the church had just given authority to. And that this was okay for an evangelical to hold, this was a good thing. I read the article because I had been looking for something in the library and at a meeting of the student and the faculty, I was asked a direct question by the dean of the seminary, uh, who had, he had called this meeting to, because some students had been having problems with the neo-orthodoxy, and he said, no, we are not neo-orthodox, we don't teach those things here, this is an evangelical school, we don't teach this sort of thing. And I said, but, you know, dean, with all due respect, here's professor so-and-so, here's the article he wrote, here is our doctrinal statement, how do you match these things together? And what he said was, well, he didn't say anything, he flummoxed and he stopped and, uh, uh, and uh, the meeting kind of broke up in a riot at that particular point, but I was a marked man. In fact, uh, within two days of that, I was walking down the hall and a professor walked up to me and said, your name Abshire? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you have to have me for your second year course. Don't take my course. You will not pass my course. I don't want you in my class. Uh, the registrar, I happened to walk in to register for the next uh, semester's classes. The registrar was a, was a lady. She looked at me and said, what are you doing reading theological journals? First year students can't read theological journals. You're just a troublemaker. Um, the word was put out. Um, it was very dangerous. I got my P.O. box was stuffed with nasty letters from people. Why don't you just shut up? Why don't you stop asking all these hard questions? And I was asking really hard questions such as, in our Old Testament class, why is it that we aren't allowed to read the Old Testament, but instead we have to read about the documentary hypothesis, about form and redaction criticism, about JEPD? Where is all this stuff coming in? Why don't we just read the Old Testament? And I wasn't being rebellious. Well, eh, well, I wasn't being too rebellious. I was asking an honest question. In my New Testament classes, I said, uh, I actually, I was asked to leave the class, and I probably deserve to do that. The professor was on the New Testament introduction of the Gospels, and uh, it was a, one of the first-year class required, and he st stood up and said, our, our goal here in this class is to discern the authentic words of Christ from the inauthentic words of Christ in the Gospel. And this was an evangelical, this is an evangelical school. <clears throat> this is a very evangelical school, and whose name, if I said it, you would all recognize it, but I won't say it because I don't want to get you guys lost, sued in the lawsuit. So I, anyway, he said, well, I want to discern the authentic words of Christ from the inauthentic words of Christ. And I, I wasn't as calm as I am today. I raised my hand and said, uh, Professor, I have a red letter edition of the New Testament. Uh, can I get advanced credit for this class? And uh, I was told to drop the class. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that, but that's okay. Um, but I, you know, I, I left that particular class. And at the end of the year, I, uh, I decided I would leave seminary. They have an outtake series where they say, um, before you leave, they'd like to interview you and ask you why you were to leave and things like that. And it was very interesting. I mean, the, the, the seminary had a lot of bizarre things that went on there. And one of the things that had stuck in my craw was a vocational analysis where they test you. They use various 
psychometric devices to test you to see whether or not you are qualified for the ministry. They make you take an MMPI, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It was a device designed to be used for severely psychotic people, people who are, you know, basically they can't function in society, but it's now being used as a personality test. And it's about as reliable as having your tarot cards read. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. But one of the tests that was outrageous was a vocational analysis test, which tested your interest with interests of people in various professions, you know, dog catcher or police officer or postal worker, and, you, know, you know, anything like that. Well, when mine came up, I was counseled on it that, Brian, you're not suited for the ministry. And I said, well, why aren't I suited for the ministry? I, I think I have a call of God in my heart, and, and I love his word, but I'm not suited. What's wrong? I said, well, you score too high on the masculine scale. You have too many interests in common with masculine-type people, and you're not high enough on the feminine scale. See, so in order to be a successful pastor, you have to be able to relate better with women than you do with men. Because, of course, women run most evangelical churches. Absolutely. At my outtake interview, when I was telling them why I was leaving, I had a two-hour discussion. It was only supposed to be a 15-minute thing. I had a two-hour discussion with, I think, a man who was a sincere man who believed gospel. But you have to re realize how this works out. In a seminary, you have departments. Each department is a little fiefdom in and of itself. And you must not criticize the other fiefdoms. So you've got to present a united front. And so this man here, who was in systematic theology, was actually quite good and has written some good stuff and has done some good things. Um, and so when, when he was the one in charge of doing my outtake interview, when I told him the things that were happening in the New Testament department, the thing in the languages department, the thing in the Old Testament, he was shocked. But I also happened to have the papers, I happened to have articles, and I gave this whole mass of information to him. At that point, I, I left Bethel's, uh, excuse me, I left the seminary, edit that out. I left the seminary and uh, went on to, to work in a church for a couple of years. But the good news was this, is that this particular individual now, I don't know this directly, and so it's only rumor. But what happened is that I think God used that because that over that summer, there were a massive series of firings at this particular seminary. There was a house cleaning. Uh, the dean uh, retired. Uh, the New Testament department was decimated. The Old Testament department, the, the best professors, actually, there was one really good professor. He ended up going to another evangelical seminary. But the bad guys left, and they brought in new men. And for about 10 years after that, as far as I know, the guys who stayed behind that I knew and were evangelicals said there was a massive change that happened in the seminary. If I had known what one man can do, and if I had courage, and if I had a biblical basis, I would have stayed there to be able to continue the Reformation. Instead, I, I simply collapsed under the pressure and walked out. But God was sovereign and used even that ineffectual witness, uh, maybe as effectual as a stone falling off a mountain, which hits another stone, which hits another stone, which hits another stone. You know, the individual stone himself is not very important, but the process is an, is an avalanche. And I think that's what happened at that particular seminary. God changed it because one man asked, in his own ignorant way, the right question at the right time. What about your doctoral research in England? I believe you mentioned that to me privately uh, somewhat earlier. You had some interesting experiences there. Yes. Well, it will sound like <clears throat> I can't get along with anybody, <clears throat> but I think I can get along with people. But, but sometimes, I have a friend of mine who is a, a very silly man who likes ferrets, but occasionally comes out with a little bit of wisdom. And one bit of wisdom, he said, is that the only way to avoid mistakes in life is through experience. 
but the only way to the only way to gain experience is to make mistakes and I think that in that respect that really summarizes my life because I have a habit of doing the right thing for the wrong reason or doing the wrong thing for the right reason and but I hope that I've learned from it in 1982 I had an opportunity to study at a British University and to do doctoral work in the sociology of religion it was a uh, I like the British University system way of doing things you're appointed an academic supervisor you do pure research you don't waste time taking silly classes and stuff uh, you do the pure research you present your dissertation you're examined by a committee and then you're granted your degree if your work is up to snuff uh, you have to present a very detailed proposal ahead of time of what you want to do and how you want to do it and what your expected conclusions are and I thought if I'm going to do doctoral work in a secular institution I've got to be very careful if I do it in New Testament I've got all the Bartians and all the neo-orthodox stuff if I do it in the Old Testament, I've got all the old German liberals to deal with. If I do it in theology, I'm going to have to deal with Bart and Bruner and Boltman and Tillich and those kind of guys. So let me pick a specialty where there hasn't been a lot of work done. And let me see if I can find a way of getting a doctorate with and run the gamut without getting caught. And I chose sociology of religion because there's very little original work that's being done in sociology religion. Most sociologists don't care about religion. Religion is a bunch of naked savages, you know, beating tom-toms and calling up spirits. So there's that kind of work, but there hasn't been a lot of really good work done on American sociological uh, implications of religion. And so I was approved into the program. I told them what I wanted to study, which was Puritan New England and its sociological impact on the rest of America. Because in those days, before I had read Rush Dooney, I knew that somewhere the answer was back there. The Puritans had done something right and had created a culture. We were doing something wrong. I wasn't sure what it was, and I wanted to go to England and study at a doctoral level to find out what the missing element of Christianity was. I went to the university. The first day that I was there, I met my professor, who was a Scot, by the way, and I have to, I have to give him credit for that. And He was a Scot, and uh, he had been a graduate student of Karl Barth, and the first thing he did was pull a volume of one of Barth's theologies down, or one of his books down anyway, and gave it to me and said, here, Brian, you may want to begin your studies by Barth. I'd really found him interesting. And I opened the book, and it was in German. Well, I hadn't chosen German for a doctoral language, but I thought, I'm in trouble here, because this man is not only a, had been a graduate student of Karl Barth's, but he's assuming you can't do doctoral work in theology unless you're fluent in German, and I knew what that meant. I uh, met with him, and his idea of a meeting with his students was to go down to the, uh, the college bar and to drink and talk about his drinking experiences. And I am serious. That is literally every single meeting I had with this man. We never talked about business. We always had to go down to the bar while I bought him drinks so he could get drunk. Now, I also had another uh, academic supervisor, in, since my area fell in, in like theology and in American history, so they assigned me an academic supervisor in American history who had been an expatriate American Marxist who had fled the United States probably, you know, uh, just a few seconds before the FBI picked him up for radical student involvement in the 60s. He was a nice guy, though. I will give him that. I mean, I don't want to criticize him too bad. But he was a Marxist, and he had a Marxist view of interpreting history. And you see, it was okay to be a Bartian and interpret the world and life and theology from Bartian perspective. It's okay to be a Marxist and interpret history from a Marxist perspective. But what you could not do is be a Christian and interpret history from a Christian perspective. I spent two years there. I did study. I, I bought my academic supervisor drinks as often as he wanted. 
uh, tried to play the game as best as I knew, and I didn't play it very well because I didn't know all the rules. And after two years, it came time to submit the rough draft of my dissertation. This was two years of very intensive labor, and I think, you know, reasonable labor, where I explored the relationship between Christianity and culture, how the Puritans, and basically the Puritans' approach to theology, their theonomic theology, built the foundation for, for American culture. And I presented it, I documented everything, it was, I had lots of quotes from secular, you know, psychologists and secular sociologists of religions. I uh, uh, did not quote uh, Christians, I think, anywhere, in the, at least in that first draft, because I was afraid they might know it was a Christian. It was a, an academic exercise, it was pure secularism, I was trying to find common ground. When I submitted it, my supervisor read no more than about five pages of it. He made a couple of uh, spelling corrections because, you know, he said, well, that's a spelling mistake there. That's, 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 that's unacceptable. Well, this is a rough draft. You wanted to see a rough draft. But he threw it back down and he said, no, this will never fly. I said, what do you mean it'll never fly? I mean, what's, what's wrong with it? And the comment he made was, and I remember this very clearly, he said, you have stated that religion is a cause of social change. That cannot be true because religion in itself is a result of social change. So whatever religious beliefs that people have is always uh, a hidden agenda for some other sociological phenomenon going on down. Well, that's outrageous. I mean, I even had quoted, you know, secular sociologists who had refuted that view. But there was a deeper uh, issue there. And even using secular methods, without, uh, without appealing to the scriptures, but trying to use their own reasoning and their own logic, I think my dissertation was very clear that without a Christian moral basis, there is no liberty, there is no freedom, there is no prosperity. And that's not by quoting scripture, although that obviously is authoritative, but simply by showing the secularists by their own wisdom that their system doesn't work. What I was doing, I didn't realize it, I didn't set out to do it, but what I was doing was showing the bankruptcy of modern academia, that there are no answers apart from scripture. Now, Van Til would have wanted me to have done it better, but what I was showing was the, the bankruptcy of humanism without Christianity. And even though I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, my secular academic supervisors did. They did not boot me out of the program. No, that would have been uh, too outrageous. They offered to do for me, I could do a lesser degree, a master's of philosophy rather than a doctor of philosophy. I could uh, spend another couple of years at the university, meanwhile paying exorbitant overseas fees because I wasn't a resident of England. I was paying uh, $6,000 a year just for tuition and nothing to do with housing and board. So I had to make a decision to take my research and see if I could get it uh, published someplace else. And in fact, that's how I came to know Dr. Rush Dooney. So I, in fact, I found out that he was still alive because when I came back to the States a few years later, I worked with a, a non-traditional uh, educational institute, the International Study Center for uh, uh, Advanced Studies, and I needed an academic supervisor to be an independent reader of my, my PhD thesis. And a friend of mine said, well, you know, the guy you need to talk to is R.J. Rushdoony. And I said, well, R.J. Rushdoony, I mean, I don't know where he is. I mean, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration or something, but surely he doesn't deal with us mere mortals. Well, uh, Brian, uh, you sent me a copy of that for which uh, I'm grateful because it was a masterly dissertation. Uh, perhaps we can spend time again on that. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.